Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of The Voice of Nero, Philosophy Clock, with a special guest, Itchy Fatoum. This time, we're going to tackle Viking philosophy. That would be the thoughts, beliefs, desires, ambitions, ethics of the people in the greater Scandinavia region, ballpark neighborhood of the Viking era, which is around 790-something to, what, 1100? How you doing, Ache Patum? What do you have for us today? Doing good. I have a bunch of stories of gods and the end of the world. I have a bunch of weird quotes that sound really weird, especially nowadays. Yeah, so there's a bunch of stuff on Viking philosophy and how the Vikings saw the world and how this affected Nordic culture in general. I think there's some overlapping themes that we see um, more emphasized in um, Northern Europe nowadays than in the rest of Europe and how this might have originated in Norse mythology is something we'll be looking at. Cool. Yeah, I fairly recently found out that our family is predominantly Scandinavian heritage. We thought we were Scottish, but there were many settlers who you raid somewhere, you find out it's nice, maybe you like the people, you like the climate, the land is more fertile, and you end up setting up shop there and living there. Yeah, there was a lot of traveling and moving about then. Uh, I read a book called The Viking Art of War recently, which is less of a how-to-do-war like Sun Tzu Art of War, and it's more of an articulation of how the Viking era happened, the mixture of violent raiding, which would have been going places and killing people, versus commerce and trade. They also would sometimes drive up to a place in their nice boat and do business with people. And if they happened upon a particularly strong empire, they would sometimes work for them as mercenaries, hired muscle, that kind of thing. So it was more flexible than the caricature of the raging berserker with the horned helmet. They did have their own survival instincts. You don't just want to throw your life away over nothing. So it was more complicated and nuanced than the stereotypes that have you believe. No, I think it's a good thing if you drive up to a village and see that it's empty, you might as well go raid it. If there's a lot of defenders there, it might be better to do trade or to get something out of going there besides just let everyone get killed. Yeah, it's a smart move. Yeah, so it sounds like you're very versed on the Viking history, probably more so than I am. It's interesting that even though I grew up in German, predominantly German-speaking country, Norse mythology is not something we're really taught. We're more so looking into the Greco-Roman mythology for our stories. Even though we're, we're arguably predominantly Norse in our heritage. You mean your family is Norse or people in Switzerland are generally? People in Switzerland. I'm not sure. I, I think that that's a good starting point. So when we look at the Norse um, mythology, it for the most part originated in Germany, 
so the German gods directly translated into the Norse gods for the most part. And they predate Norse mythology, so there's a big overlap there, a big influence that the early German mythology had on Norse mythology. There's two different kind of pantheons in Norse mythology, one of which is the one that has Thor and Udin um, as their main characters. The other one has Freyr and Freya as the main gods. And these two different realms of gods most likely originated from different Viking beliefs coming together and forming a unified beliefs that took all the different gods and kind of made work with that. And this is a, an important point. When we talk about Norse or Viking philosophy, it's easy to look at it as one unified thing that people believed back then. But Vikings, for the most part, were very tribal, so they believed in different gods depending on what village you're from, what kind of social group you, you grew up in. So there's not much in terms of one overlapping belief that everyone shared, but they believed in different aspects of one greater realm of subsets of beliefs, I guess, the right thing to put it, right way to put it. Yeah, the thing that comes to mind there is say within greek mythology for certain towns or cities they might have a particular god that they favored more or maybe they believe in the entire pantheon but they focus on one particular one for their prayers and sacrifices and things like that yeah but this is normal this is something that we see in all different polytheistic cultures that you kind of pick and choose the god you want to praise the most and ask for favors the most, I guess is the better way to put it. So the Vikings grew up in a land that was defined by very long, harsh winters. It was difficult to do agriculture. It wasn't impossible, but the need for raiding mostly came from the fact that it was hard at times to have enough food or to produce enough food in their own country. So they grabbed the boats and went to some more fertile place and look for food there. The grass is greener to the south. It is. Unless you're from the south hemisphere, then it's greener in the north. That's true. We do have a northern hemisphere bias. We definitely do. I think it's also how we draw the map since we're not located like there's no plane in the universe we might as well uh, flip our map 180 degrees so um, north america or europe would be at the bottom and that would might change your view of the world oh yeah because we scan top to bottom yeah and there are some countries that scan right to left though like Japanese. <clears throat> yeah, I think it, it has to do with the way we read. So if you normal reading direction is right to left, you scan differently than when you go uh, top to bottom. Yeah, so there was a big need for raiding or to get the resources you need to survive for the Vikings. And out of that, they grew a rather fierce warrior culture. 
So a lot of their values are based on being a good, honorable warrior and knowing how to fight, knowing how to fight well, but also knowing how to fight honorably. The underlying ethics of Norse mythology are pretty similar to ancient Greek philosophy, especially Aristotle. So they had a big emphasis on being wise, having the vis wisdom to do the right thing, and by doing the right thing, living a life of virtue, you can attain happiness. I think that's something we've heard not only from the Greeks, but from most other philosophies or ethics we talked about, that wisdom is the main component to need in order to live a good life. Because if you're not knowing what you do and what you should do, it's pretty difficult to do anything right. You need some sort of code. Exactly. Some sort of principles. They also emphasized the social nature of being human and that in order to be good, we need to be good to others. That we, it's really difficult, especially back then, but even nowadays to do anything by yourself. So you need to go along with other people in order to live a good life or to get what you need at least. So they had a big emphasis on how to treat a guest, for example, and how to be a good host. There's a couple of interesting phrases in the Poetic Era that just deal with how do you accommodate a stranger in your house. One thing that I always do is have a fresh glass of crisp water. Why ask if they want water? They should want water. It's the best beverage. The emphasis on being a good host is something that is a quid pro quo, that you're, you're trying to be the best host you can because if you go somewhere and you had to walk um, distances to get enough food to hunt, you had to stay with strangers and they had to keep you warm and give you food. So you had to be a good host because you wanted to expect other people to be a good host as well. So it was a fairly social culture when it came to one-on-one um, -on -one interactions. So you could um, go to a stranger's house and they would accommodate you and would give you whatever you need as long as they have it. And then they were fairly brutal when it came to social interactions where groups of different Viking beliefs or different, like with different goals came together, it usually ended bloody. They're not known for their, uh, their skills of ending a conflict without a battle. Although they did that too, and they were fairly good at it, as you talked about, when they realized that raiding wasn't the best thing, that there's other options that could be mutually beneficial for people. They were good tacticians in that sense, but the stories we now know are mostly, they went everywhere and killed everyone and then took all the loot and go home. Which is, as I said, the effect of the Christianization 
of the stories about Norse mythology, where the Christians just wanted to distance them and um, tell the stories about the the barbarics that lived before them and how Christianity made everything better. So you just describe them as being these brutal berserkers that just kill everything in their path. Uh, so you're saying that the stereotype that the Viking is a raging berserker is partly due to the Christians that followed? Yeah. Okay, we're trying to distance ourselves from everything that was before just because we want to feel good about ourselves. Old ideas, bad. New ideas, good. Exactly. It's gone. <laughs> well, there was one aspect of Viking social structure that motivated me to make one of my WoW characters the main tank, and that is the lead from the front setup of how <clears throat> their leadership structure was tied to their like warrior culture. Typically, the people who are leading in the raids, and maybe they're the king or the earl or whatever, they would be a really strong fighter in their own right, and they didn't have as many advanced weaponry and ballistics and things that they would use in full-scale war. It was more of the person who's the biggest badass ends up being the king. And whenever the fighting comes to, they're right on the front lines, inspiring their allies and taunting and trying to demoralize their enemies. And that's a pretty stark contrast to how a lot of government and combat is run. Usually it's the people in the fancy chairs who are the generals and they're making the calls, but they're not putting themselves at risk. So the lead from the front uh, culture, I really like a lot about that. Yeah, it, it makes sense in a historical context uh, because the way you got to be the leader of a Viking um group was usually by stabbing the former leader so it was good to be the strong type that could stab because the person that was running the place before you probably was that kind of person too so it, it's natural that the strong leader type came out of this culture where you if you don't like your leader anymore you just stab him and be the new leader and it's different nowadays where we elect people democratically and we don't elect them based on their ability to stab people for the most part. We just stab them with votes. Yeah. Yeah, I think the how good people are at stabbing is really not as important anymore in elections nowadays. But I think it depends a lot on how good you pretend at being at stabbing people so if you can show off as the strong man even though you don't even know how to hold a spear it, it, it looks good in your resume and people will vote for you because you're presumed to be someone that can stab if need be my notes are all over the place once again so it's difficult to kind of have a um, red line running through them um, Probably best if you ask questions whenever I'm missing for knowing for what to say next or tell some of the Viking stories you know. There was a question in the chat about the stature of the Viking people because I think it was pretty widely reported that they were quite a bit taller than a lot of uh, people in mainland Europe. Was that like historically verified or is it kind of a 
a perspective thing where if they're showing up and kicking ass, they seem larger? Because I do know uh, that presently people with Norse heritage on average are above average height. So there's two different things there, one of which I think most of it is a myth because Vikings for the most part were malnourished because they didn't have enough food um, in their home country so their stature, stature wasn't as big as they're uh, shown to be. The other thing would be, and I think we talked about this last time, is um, the more north you go in Europe, the more Neanderthal um, DNA there is in people and that would lead them to be a bit taller. But mm -hmm. that's kind of hard to tell how big that influence would be. I did notice visiting England that the really old buildings have much, much lower doorways. So people have gotten quite a bit taller over time just by virtue of having better diet. I think it's especially when you're in your developing years, the more food you have, the faster you grow because growth is happening the fastest whenever you're asleep and around puberty. I regressed as a, a child as well. Man, that sounds about right. Although I think the predominant theory is that people get larger nowadays because the flying spaghetti monsters don't have, doesn't have enough um, power to push every one of us down. So uh, as we get more people, it kind of weakens and the spaghetti monster can't hold us into place as it used to. So we're growing larger as a result. Amen. Yeah, so the Vikings being this strong type, there definitely were some really strong Vikings. And as you said, they used to put their berserkers, the strongest and best fighters in the front row, because it was intimidating to the, the enemy if you see a bunch of huge people running towards you, especially if you're just a village that doesn't have weapons because for the most part in the rest of Europe, the Christian church was running things and they didn't like their subjects to be having weapons because that kind of messes with your calamity. If your subjects that you ought to get your taxes from are all heavy weaponized. So one of the things that we've talked about, generally speaking, is the relationship between violence and productivity basically the notion that violence is forced upon people in certain situations but for the growth of a population over time it's a zero-sum game because if you're gonna kill someone and take their stuff you've not increased the amount of total stuff in the world you've just moved it from someone's inventory to yours as opposed to with collaboration and commerce you can grow over time by working with other people so one of the foundational questions there is what were some of the incentives for the Vikings against killing? Like, did they have some particular gods who pushed mercy and things like that? The Viking art of war didn't really get into the Norse mythology that much. They had some gods that were more merciful, but they were a warrior culture. So all of their, main and most important gods were strong warriors that were had a lot of wisdom so they always fought intelligently 
Udin being the prime example and um, a lot of the stories from Norse mythology is Udin tricking people into doing what he wants them to do. Loki being another sometimes god, sometimes human-like being, sometimes a giant. It's not really clear who Loki was, but he's a trickster. So he tricked people into doing his will or his bidding. So they were really big on the concept of wisdom in doing things. And that meant acting according to what's best. So if you grow up, uh, if you go up to a well-protected fortress, it's probably best not to raid it, but to try to get what you want by other means. If you go up to a monastery that is not protected and has a bunch of loot just laying around, it's probably the best way to just get that loot and get out. At least by Viking logic. So what you said in terms of a zero-sum game, it wasn't like that for the Vikings because they came from a country that had sparse resources. So for them, going out and looting was, for their social group at least, very beneficial. So the, the incentives on raids being successful is really big because they just couldn't sustain themselves based on their agricultural products. Yeah, I think the soil is less fertile in much of Scandinavia as well. So even comparing it with the same latitude, uh, England or the British Isles and Scandinavia, I think the British Isles are comparatively better for farming. Yeah, that... A big motivating factor from the book that I read for the Viking raids was they had a population boom preceding that. So it was getting more crowded. So there was more incentive for people to look elsewhere because you have a limited amount of land that you can farm from. And as the population is increasing, you can run into a food shortage even though you have a lot of land in Scandinavia, much of it is super cold. And if it's permafrost, you're not going to be able to grow any crops. And if the soil quality is low, you also aren't going to be able to grow very much. Yeah, it, it makes sense to go other places if you can grow stuff on your homeland. And the winters being really long makes it difficult to plant anything because if there's especially long winter, it's the time is not long enough for the crops to grow properly and then be harvested. So in a usual, during a usual year, they probably made enough money to sustain them and not enough money, enough food to sustain them. But if it was a harsh winter, it just wasn't nearly enough. Were there any people who were like really key points, not mythical characters, but we talked about Confucius and Lao Tzu and Buddha some, and those are all real people who existed and shaped ideas. Were there any uh, Viking philosophers in that sense, people were, who were idea people? Um, yeah, that's the, the main issue with Norse uh, philosophy, that we don't have someone we can point towards um, saying that they were, they are where the philosophy originated. The main source that we have is the Poetic Edda. Um, the, these 
ancient writings, um, poems that described how Odin was describing the world. And the main source for that is a adaptation that was done in the 13th century by a guy named Snorri Sturluson. But he was Christian already and he so adapted you right, you said the name. Um, the name was Snorri Sturluson. And he was a scholar in Iceland at the time. And he adapted these texts to uh, include the Christian beliefs and to look at Norse mythology through a Christian lens. So that's why they're pretty much disputed and not a good source but he's like the one guy to look towards when we're looking at all right what, what are we looking at in terms of norse mythology mm -hmm. so he was similar to confucius in a sense where he was the one collecting writings and translating them and making them understandable for the people at the time but more so than confucius um he was putting his own touch into it Although we kind of can, I think it's fair to believe that Confucius did this too, but it wasn't as obvious because he had his own writings that were more influential than the things he translated for the most part. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think we can start kind of looking at the North mythology and the, the things they believed in to kind of give us a sense of what their worldview looked like. So the central figure in Norse mythology is a tree, Yggdrasil. It's the world tree and it holds together the nine different worlds. Nine different worlds uh, consists of four different heavens. Um, there's Asgard, Vanaheim, Alfheim and Nidavellir or something like that. There's the realm of the humans, Midgard. Then there's a bunch of different um, hells or homes of the giants. The giants lived outside the realm of the humans. It's called Jotunheim. Then there's the realm of the elves. There's the land of the death, uh, of the dead. It's hell with just one L. There's the frozen circle, um, Niflheim. And there's the fire circle, Muspelheim. So these are the nine different realms that everything was happening in. And most of the stories in North mythology was people or the gods from Asgard going into the realm of the giants and trading with them or most likely killing them. I think that's something we see in the modern day four movies as well, but I haven't seen them, so I can't really comment on that. I would recommend watching Thor Ragnarok for sure. It has a different director than the other two and is really good. Maybe the best Marvel movie that's ever been made. Okay. Yeah, it has a more whimsical feel to it. I, the earlier Thor movies took the character more seriously 
and some of it was kind of cheesy, but the the Ragnarok film, different director, really great pacing and tempo, and they're super fun. I really like the set of characters. Thor and Loki are both really cool. It'd be interesting to watch it and see how how well they're doing in terms of the actual mythology and how much just adapting it to be worth watching nowadays. Yeah, well, the characters are from the Marvel Universe, so they're the comic book versions, but they're inspired by the mythological characters. Chicken Man is saying the first to have more Norse mythology stuff. So can I ask, is Hell of Norse mythology connected with Hell, the Christian Hell, and how that's portrayed? It seems like a huge coincidence if they both have such a similar name. It's a good question. I don't really know the answer to that. Um, so hell with one L, or the, the land of the dead in uh, Norse mythology, was ruled by Hel, the daughter of Loki. So I think that's where it got its name from. Uh, mm. Odin kind of banned her there, and she gave the name to the place, I guess. In terms of how related it is to the Christian concept of hell, and if there was an influence on the naming convention, uh, I wouldn't know. But I can look that up for next time's talk. Um, There's a lot of um, terms in Norse mythology, names of Norse gods that had an influence um, on language nowadays. Um, There was a goddess of storytelling she was called saga it's a good example mm-hmm. ah this reminds me what one thing i found out was why Thrall was named Thrall, the world of warcraft character why is that so the thralls in viking culture were the lowest status um people they were slaves basically and this is where the origins of Thrall the character is as well and he was a slave before he became the whatever the orcs call their ruler chief lord chief war chief i am the war chief orc culture only have a war chief during war times or is the war chief the supreme ruler even in peace times well as the name warcraft suggests there's pretty much (laughs) something going on fair enough there might be i don't know enough deep wild lord to say one way or the other but they keep coming out with content and every single content patch seems to have a major conflict It's not like they have a content patch and it's like, all right, you're farmers now. We actually solved the disputes between the Horde and the Alliance and you can just go about your business and become merchants. Yeah. It'd be really good for the economy though. If everyone just produced stuff and there wouldn't be as much emphasis on killing things, it'd be a big boost to the economy. Both in World of Warcraft as well as in the real world. Um, in Roman culture, this was before Caesar, who kind of took over the job as emperor and rolled with it. They had this concept of a war chief, where during times of peace, they had 
they have people coming together and deciding on things on a social basis and kind of talking like a about town stuff. hall meeting. Yeah. But there's they had a word for it. I don't remember it. Top of my head. Um it will come back to me later. Um, so they decided, ah, the Senate, it was the Senate. Um, in the Roman Senate, they had all these different voices of obviously rich and powerful people. It's not like everyone had a voice. Um, but they kind of had to come to come together to find the solutions they want to go with. But during times of war, when you need someone just to decide, all right, this is what's happening now. They had uh, an emperor. And the story goes that the emperor, once the war was over, returned to his homeland and went back to farming. So you, you don't necessarily have the uh, war hungry type, but you wanted to have someone that actually preferred being in their homeland and um, doing farming over someone that just went wants to go to war all the time because you you want to have peace i think that's that's one thing we've learned over history that peaceful times are for the most part more, more beneficial to people than war times i think that that's something that world of warcraft kind of gets wrong then again i think it's yeah. more interesting to play war than it is to to play peace times i get that but what if the combat mechanics are fun that's the thing with the World of Warcraft that's not the case in uh, real life, which is that combat hurts. <laughs> it physically hurts. When you get hit with a mace in a video game, it doesn't hurt as bad as if you actually got hit with a mace in real life. That's true. Yeah, and I think that's also one of the main things that is missing from the Viking series. I haven't watched all of it, so I kind of stopped watching after one of the main characters wasn't in the show anymore to not spoil it too much for people um the agriculture aspects or the way they run their society during quote-unquote peace times for the vikings had a big impact on why they went to to raids it's in the show it's portrayed as raiding as something that they want to do mostly out of fun they don't really emphasize the um economic necessity of going to raids because they didn't have enough food due to agriculture um missing out i and recently just watched the first couple episodes and it kind of alludes to it as a means of upward mobility so i think it depended on the village right if you're in a really crappy village that might be the way that they survive but if you're in kind of a mid-tier village, that could be a way that you could increase your legend and your lore and your standing and maybe get rich. But it's different amounts of pressure depending on what kind of Viking you are. Not all the villages are the same. Yeah, makes sense. Now, and I think the raiding is mostly something that the towns that lived by the coast did because it was a lot more difficult to raid by foot than it was to raid with a boat. But they were social in the sense where they wanted to go for a big raid. They had other villages join them and just be a big group of people to go raid some big place. 
So there was a really nice social aspect to Viking raiding, even though it was the in-group kind of social. So most of what we'll be talking about or are already talking about is what's happening in Midgard, the realm of the regular people. Um, most of the stories are about the gods in Asgard, Vanaheim, Alfheim, um, the giants in Jotunheim, or stuff that's happening in hell. But for our understanding of what the Vikings did, it's important to have an understanding of how they saw their own world, um, this being Midgard. So as the world tree connects all these different worlds, once you died in Midgard, there's different places to go to. For the warriors that died in honorable death, they could go the Rainbow Bridge to Valhalla, which was kind of the um, it's kind of the town before the actual realm of the gods. So if there's a big castle where the gods live in, Valhalla would be a small town that's kind of in front of the door of the actual realm of the gods. If you didn't do as good, you would go to hell, the land of the dead, which is just a barren place. So it's not you're not punished in hell for your sins or whatever. It's just it's basically it's nothingness. Although nothingness as in a place. Or you could go to either the icy or the fiery hell of, of Norse mythology based on how bad you did. So the frozen realm was for the dishonored dead. And I'm not quite sure what you needed to do to go to the fiery realm, but it probably was a nice fix. So all these worlds are connected through the world tree or specifically the roots of the world tree that stands on top of the realm of Asgard. There's a really nice picture I'm gonna link in chat for everyone that needs kind of visualization of what these realms look like. Yes, um, Dante's Inferno definitely had some influence by Norse mythology in terms of how he depicted different realms of hell also, nine being very um, centrical a number, seemingly, in Norse mythology, and there being nine circles of hell as well as nine circles of heaven. Yeah, there's most definitely some overlap between um, Dante's telling of the story of going through hell and Norse mythology, and in turn, as we talked about last time, Dante's view of hell had a big influence on the general Christian view of hell. Well, yeah, it's not very well explained in the Bible what exactly hell is. So if anyone provides some details, it can be a pretty major influence because there weren't too many. Yeah, I'm not quite sure on this, but I assume that hell was not really mentioned in the Old Testament but only got into the New Testament due to the Zoroastrian influence where you had this dichotomy between 
god and the anti-god basically and the, the fight between them that kind of um, decides our fate in the long run but I'm not quite sure about this yeah, there is a lot of it in Revelation. That's the book that has most of the weirder, like spiritual warfare thing, end times, that kind of stuff. Much of the New Testament was more about Christ and his teachings, or it was letters from the different disciples of Christ to various churches or peoples. Yeah, so in terms of the different gods that lived in the different heavenly realms, there's the ones we know, I think knowing a lot about them, it would be a stretch, but we, we, know, we heard of them um, being Thor and Odin, probably the most well-known. I think Freyr and Freya are known a bit as well. But then there's a whole pantheon of other people and they overlap with Rome, uh, Greek or Roman mythology, they're not the same gods, but they there's a god for fertility, there's a god for drunkenness, there's a, a god for archery. There's they basically they had gods for all different kinds of things, which is similar to all the other polytheistic religions at the time. Where you just, if, if there was something that was happening, you, you can't really explain. Or if there was some skill that was um, valued in society, there's probably a god for it. There are gods for times of peace and gods for times of war. Gods for beer. Gods for archery. Yeah, I think for a given god, they could represent multiple things. But if yeah. there's a thing, there should be a, a main god for that. Um, outside the realm of the gods there was the realm of the giants and the giants are sometimes benevolent sometimes just these evil beings they're for the most part they they want something different than the gods so they follow their own interest and they're not really faced by humanity so they don't care about humanity in that sense so they if they wanted something they just took it and the gods were trying to stop them, for the most part, trying to help humanity or trying to help their own interest. God, it's and so then they had a lot of funny um, mythological creatures that kind of are referenced in a lot of, I guess, RPGs or in other works of fiction. There was a big influence of the Norse realm on J.R. Tolkien's work, talking about the elves or talking about the dwarfs. Most of that originated for one part or another in Norse mythology. And then there's things like Sleipnir, the wor world serpent that is a giant snake that eats its own tail that is wrapped around the human realm. I think that gets referenced quite a bit. Um, Fenrir, a giant wolf. I think you see that one in the Dark Souls games. It's a wolf holding a sword. 
and his uh, fangs. There's Sleipnir, the eight-legged horse that Udin rides on. You can see this one in the Final Fantasy games. Yeah, so th there's a bunch of funny and weird mystical creatures that inhabit Norse mythology that are so fun that they get referenced a lot in more modern IPs. Today on Viking Philosophy, we're learning all those mythical video game creatures are actually from Viking Philosophy. Not all of them. For the most part, they, they kind of collect different um, creatures from all the different mythologies and mix them together, which is a bit weird. Also, really nice in a sense, where you have the, in terms of Final Fantasy, which I probably know best you have for example shiva from from buddhism you have or from hinduism you have odin from north mythology you have ariman from zoroastrianism so they're just they for the most part gave those creatures um amazing names and the naming conventions for gods what was in a sense that you really wanted to use them again because they had such awesome names. I mean, Sleipnir for a four-legged, uh, eight-legged horse or Fenrir for a wolf. These are just awesome names and it makes it a lot easier to, if you ever try to write a story, coming out with names is pretty difficult at times. So just collecting a bunch of awesome names and awesome characters that are already well known and understood makes your life a lot easier so i think there's a comparison to be made between zeus and odin because they're both kind of the peak of the mountain for a polytheistic belief system and they have some similarities in how they're portrayed but i think some differences i think odin is more known for his cunning than Zeus? Yeah. 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 Odin was, he was a really good warrior, but he was a good warrior because he wasn't necessarily the mightiest, but he was the trickiest in how he approached his battles. So a lot of the stories of Odin fighting the giants is not actually him physically fighting them, but, um, tricking them into what he wanted them to do. This is in The Hobbit, the conversation between uh, Smeagol and what Bilbo? Was he called? Bilbo, yeah, where he tricked them into giving him the ring because um, Smeagol didn't know what was in, in Bilbo's pocket. Like this kind of trickery is directly taken from Norse mythology. So it's like, all right, tell me something yeah, so you can't possibly being successful, know. Not you can't? All right, I win. Yeah, so it's more of like outwitting or outsmarting them rather than overpowering them directly. I think Thor was more known for that, where he was more of just the heavy hammer hit stuff. Yeah, Thor wasn't portrayed as being necessarily smart. He was portrayed, portrayed as being a mighty, mighty warrior. 
building a mighty hammer. And that was his thing. He, he wasn't the, the kind of guy that thought through things, but uh, his philosophy was punch first, ask questions later. He was also the people's champ, right? Like he was the god of the farmers and more of the common folk. Uh, not sure about that. I I'd assume that he would be the um, the god of the people that mostly liked raiding. So, for the most part, we tend to look towards the god that is most similar with our values. So if you're the kind of punch first, ask question later guy, you'd probably look towards four, um, yeah, towards four. And if you're more the uh, cunning type that tries to negotiate and do stuff that way, you'd be looking towards Odin. And for agriculture, there was a um, god of agriculture whose name I don't remember. Oh, Odin's son, protector of mankind, ride to meet your fate, your destiny awaits. Yes, we know that song. <laughs> Who did it better, Sabaton or Amon Amarth? Uh, Amon Amarth. Okay. <laughs> um, I'm gonna take a quick bio break and in the meantime try to find out what the there's a list of gods we can compare that might be worth looking at but i have to find out right be right back you guys are sweet who did it best sabaton or amonomarth and you say nero comparing a list of gods he didn't say which gods we're comparing Norse gods? Are we comparing North to Greek gods? Because I asked that question about Zeus. You've only heard the Sabaton version. They're they've got the same melody, right? It's I think Sabaton did the cover of Amonomarth's version. More singing in Sabaton's version. More growling in Amonomarth's version. They're both good. They're both good songs but I have more of the melodic death metal bias. Sometimes Sabaton for me gets into the realm of cheesy. Dragon Force is an example of a band that is permanently in the realm of cheesy. For Sabaton, it's like if I listen to a few songs in a row, it can get there. Some bands are self-aware intentionally cheesy, like Immortal is a black metal act, but they joke about a lot. They stick out their tongue. The main guy, Abbath, he's very goofy, so he'll dance around and be a silly goose. It's not super, super serious. And I think comic relief and being able to have fun and not take yourself too seriously is totally legit as well. Yeah, Sabaton is like historical hard rock or something. I guess the genre. A lot of their songs are about particular battles or scenarios. They reference particular dates. People fact check Sabaton. They own it though, if you've seen the singer's outfit in live events. Yeah, the live performance is a really cool aspect of being in a band. 
because I think that's the, the living, breathing representation of what a band can do. The studio album involves so many other steps of mastery, and you can do mistakes and things like that, that it doesn't really show the raw, in-the-moment performance drops of the person. So you asked about comparing the different gods, but I wasn't sure if you wanted to compare Norse gods to Norse gods or Norse gods to Greek gods. So we ended up debating Sabaton versus Amonamarth. Makes sense. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, f- I find a nice comparison that kind of looks at the the different realms, the the gods or the different domains they were um, the chiefs of through the different cultures. So we have Germanic, which for the most part are similar to Norse mythology. They use the same names. Woden would be Odin, but there's similar names all over. And then you have the Roman, the Greek, and the Egyptian gods as a comparison. So we have the supreme god, which would be Odin, uh, Jupiter in Roman, Zeus in Greek mythology. And then they have some overlapping they don't have a god for the sun the moon uh, and the moon as they had in roman and greek mythology um helios being the sun god in greek mythology um i think we can see where we get a heliocentric um worldview from in terms of the naming convention yeah so there's gods for earth fire the sea water and rain um thunder all of these being four uh, the the water rain and thunder not the earth and fire part but as you asked about um the normal folk who would they pray to if they want to have good harvest it'd probably be Frey or, or boulder the gods of fertility harvest vegetation they might be praying to Uller um if they were hunters they might be praying to freya if they want to find a nice mate so as with polytheistic religions you kind of you pray to the god that was most needed in the situation so if you were looking to have a bunch of rain you'd be praying towards four if you just wanted to have fertile lands you'd be praying towards frey or boulder if you had some general concern, you'd probably ask Odin. Ask the main boss. Yeah, it makes sense. It's results-oriented prayer. You pray to the god who's most likely to be able to fix the problem. So we did the world tree. Another interesting aspect of the way they built their worldview around that tree is how they saw the universe as a whole. So they, the picture I linked before was kind of like how the different realms are connected through roots of the tree. And they believe that outside of these nine realms, it's, how to say this, it's not nothing, but it's just a celestial sphere. So they, they didn't believe in there being anything outside of these nine realms. There's just a bunch of nice um, stars in the night sky. Yeah, I would guess that the Norse culture was less 
storied in its academia than Greco-Roman culture. There's less yeah. of an emphasis on reading and writing, which are very important for sharing ideas. And I think that's part of why uh, Viking history is a little bit less tangible and hard to break down. Yeah, exactly. They it's had in... Nordic runes, but it wasn't as comprehensive for a written language. Yeah, trying to read emotes and make sense of them is always a bit difficult. Is there a Kappa Viking around? Odin is the best god ever, Kappa, signed Loki. <laughs> yeah, that's a funny thing with the concept of trolling. Is there evidence pieces of vandalism in cultures all around the world, all across history and prehistory? People talking shit, like saying this person is an idiot, and they wanted to write that on the wall. Now we just write it in comments on videos or in Twitch chat. But people are anatomically, evolutionarily, basically the same. Evolution happens over such a large time frame. That's one of the funny things to consider with these historical looks that we're taking at ancient Chinese culture or Viking culture is they're the same organisms with similar brains and that kind of thing. We're not that different. But the ideas that we have and the cultural norms are very, very different depending on the time period and location. Yeah, so as individuals, we don't, we're really bound by the social norms we grew up in, and they change quite a bit over time. But the basic human condition remains the same for the most part. Mm -hmm. um, I want to talk about what's happening right now in this context, because we're now at a impressive state of... Um, social thinking for humanity something that's been unprecedented before and this is with the coronavirus for the not necessarily for the first time but definitely for the first time on this scale we decided as a society that we want to sacrifice the economy in order to protect the um, most vulnerable within our society and over the ages, we did a lot of decision-making based on, oh, we can't hurt the economy because that would hurt people too much or would hurt the individuals in power too much. But with this um, pandemic, we cautiously decided, all right, we have to do something and it might cost trillions for the economy. We want to protect those most vulnerable and we put a higher emphasis on human life than we do on economic growth, which is something that is really honorable and is not something you would have expected um, 50 years prior to this, where the economic growth was the most important thing. I think there is a note here too, in that the people who are elderly oftentimes have a greater network of influence too because they've been around longer, they've met more people and they have higher standing in places of governance, for example. So for that decision to be made, I think is partially a result of that balance of power and that older people have more power than people in their 20s. So if there's something that's going to be impacting the elderly, I would guess there would be a 
heavier response on the side of the government. So you think that this decision was just made by old people looking out for themselves? I think that self-preservation is a very powerful force. I'm not saying it like in a conspiracy capacity, but <laughs> if you're looking at the U.S. Senate and House of Representatives, we have a lot of people who are older. So for them to vote in favor of a stimulus package related to this and a lot of the people who are in state government telling people to be on lockdown and stay inside and things like that are very good for them too. It's not like they're just doing this out of the goodness of their heart. It also helps them survive. Oh, yeah, that, that's for sure. Yeah, but it is interesting if you we look, for example, at China with the Great Leap Forward, where they basically sacrificed millions of people in order for economic growth to happen really fast. And roughly 50 years later, we have this turnaround in values where it's, all right, we need to protect the people. And parts of it definitely is to protect the economy in the long run as well. But we're protecting, we're sacrificing the short-term economic growth in order to protect, like we're looking at a, at least somewhat bigger scale of things than just from one day to the next and how much the stock market has um, gained in value, which is nice. I think uh, gaining a bit of scale in, in this sense is what we need. I think it needs to grow even a bit further where we see that we're potentially doing some problematic things to the biospheres and we might to address that at some point as well. But for the most part, it's we, we're sacrificing the economy in the short term in order to, to gain stability in the long term. And this also might have some self-preservation um, issues within there as well. If there's too big of an issue within society, people get grumpy and they take it out on their leaders for the most part. So if too many people would die, people would be even more unhappy with leadership. And this is problematic to those in power. So it, it might just have a self-preservation aspect to it as well. But it's interesting to see nevertheless. Yeah, it is. I think to within human nature, there is the ability for us to get serious about something that is a really tremendous challenge. I think the times when we bicker the most are when things are pretty okay and we tend to blow up small things out of proportion because we don't really have a big obstacle to tackle. So we've talked some of these philosophy times before about a common enemy and a common enemy doesn't necessarily have to be another nation or aliens. It could be like in this case, a virus, something that is a plague to us that forces us to rally and work together in ways that we didn't have to otherwise. Or in the case of social distancing, work less together. <laughs> it's an interesting aspect where we we have to work together by not working together. It's like so it's it's opposite to how we would normally see the social aspect of things. So we're being social by being antisocial.
Yeah, there is an element of sadness to it too. I did see that in Italy, people who died from the virus are not given funerals that other people can attend. So you're kind of isolated and left alone and you die alone and then you're not honored in the same way. But a lot of problems with diseases end up being really bad because of cultures surrounding funerals and deaths. I've heard of some cases where they have a tradition of sometimes touching the deceased person as part of the funeral ritual. And if that person had something that could still be on them when they're dead, then that's going to spread it to everyone who's there, which is really bad. Yeah, it's not the best practice in a sanitary sense. No. But those practices came before there was a germ theory of disease. So they didn't really know better. Yeah, our understanding of how um, diseases work has evolved a lot in the last hundred years or so. And the way we know how to keep safe from them is roughly three, four hundred years. I'm, I'm not quite sure when the, we got rid of the plague because we realized that some of the things we did at the time were not as sanitary as they're supposed to be and we tend to get sick if we just pile up the shit in the streets for example and this has a lot to do with uh, population growth as well where we we're just at a point in time where we know for the most part what we're doing and how we're supposed to be doing it and therefore we, we don't have as as many people dying as a consequence of our wrongdoing. And this is something we'll constantly develop. So we'll be looking back at this age now in two, three hundred years and think how barbaric we um, these times were. I think anonymity is one that hasn't really been tackled by philosophy as much as it needs to, but I guess it it might not end up being that much of a topic as we become more public with our online personas. So it may be a problem that we don't have to tackle as much. The problem I of anonymity? Was, yeah, because I think I mentioned that in the World Economic Forum speech thing that I wrote, which was that our online presence is going to be a larger and larger factor in who we are as people. I mean, for a streamer or people with a YouTube channel, obviously you're in the upper end of that. But even for your common person, like your Facebook page, your Instagram page, your TikTok, whatever you're using to communicate with other people is developing more of its own uh, storyline. So being mindful of how your online presence reflects upon your real self and that those actions have consequences too. It's not just a space like a sandbox where you can be crappy to people with no consequences it was like yeah. that for a while i think it still is like that for a lot of parts i think the only people that actually see consequences for their behavior on social media are people that are famous already so if you're just some nobody from somewhere you can still be as vile and as hateful as you always were on the internet without having much consequences for it mm -hmm. um did we 
talk about the story of the Ring of Gygus. Yes. If you had the ability to be invisible, would you do like Exactly. Yeah. So this is a story from Greek mythology that kind of addresses the um, how to behave when you don't have to to fear consequences. Uh, the ring is similar to the ring that Bilbo found. It makes you invisible. It doesn't have the side effect of having some scary um, Nazgul looking for you. It just made you invisible. So it, it, it was the better ring for its purpose. Um, so the ring made you invisible. So you were able to do a bunch of stuff like stealing things or um, sleep with the king's wife. Just the kind of things you do once you're invisible, obviously. <laughs> and they were debating at the time whether or not you should still act morally if you don't have to fear consequences, which is a really interesting question. And what Plato came down to is it'd be weird for you to act morally if you don't have to fear consequences. If you have the possibility to do all these things, you might as well do them. If you have to fear consequences for them, you're probably better off not doing them. And that's the, I think it emphasizes the social aspect of being a human and not being invisible, where your actions will affect other people and in return it will affect you because other people might not like you. Mm-hmm. There's an element of World of Warcraft that I think translates very directly to real life, which is your reputation score. There are factions in the game that will sell better stuff to you or give you discounts on things or treat you better if you have good standing with them. And in real life, there's a similar uh, social dynamic of if you do something for someone, they might not give you a really tangible reward that you're super excited about but it can increase your reputation with them, which has a whole host of long-term benefits. Opens a lot of doors. Yeah. This social aspect of our life is emphasized in all the philosophies we talked about until now. There will be some more egoistic um, philosophies going forward, which kind of hold the ideal that if you look out for yourself, everyone is looked after and that the social aspects will arise naturally, which I think is a dubious claim. But all the older religions and ethic codes were really centered around us having to live together in order to, to make do and to make a good living. So to kind of go back on the values of the Viking culture, so we talked a bit about how important it was to to be a good host, to to be a good human being, even to strangers. One thing that was always emphasized is even though you have to treat them nicely, you give them water and food, you give them a warm bed, is never to trust someone that you let into your house. You don't even trust your friends, which I think is not the nicest trait. Um, someone from a Scandinavian country could comment on how that's reflected in modern culture. If there's this 
distancing in terms of trust to other people. That's not necessarily the case in other cultures. Like in, um, to quote Confucius, he said that um, it's more dishonorable to distrust your friends than it is to be deceived by them. So the, the element of trust was big in Confucian culture, while in Viking culture, because there's always the possibility of getting stabbed, they didn't put as much emphasis on trust. So you had to be wary of the other person, but you had to treat them nicely. Yeah, if you think about trust, it's kind of like placing a bet that they're going to be loyal and truthful and good to you. You don't have foresight. Like, I trust this person because I know that they're not going to wrong me in the future. You think that they probably won't. And you're going to base decisions on the assumption that they won't, even though you are only working from past evidence, which could be pretty good. Like, if they've built a ton of reputation, they've done a lot of stuff for you, they've gone out of their way to help you, they put themselves at risk for you, that's someone you can trust a lot. And it's something that makes me smile when people will do something like be a new viewer in the Twitch chat and they'll ask to be a moderator or they'll be a new member of the WoW Guild and they'll ask to be an officer. And you don't even know who they are because they've been around for a day. <laughs> so even if they've been nice for a day, they haven't represented the consistent trustworthiness over time that through trials and tribulations, they will still be good to you, even when they're having a bad day, even when they're grumpy and upset. Because I think that's when trust is really tested, is when things get tough, not when things are comfy. Yeah, I would totally agree. Yeah, and I think for Viking culture, it's based on their knowledge of how things go. So the, um, the emphasis on not necessarily trusting a stranger came from history where you just had people coming to your house and raiding the place. It's not a, it's a fight for yourself kind of culture in some regard or fight for your tribal group. So to be cautious of the stranger you let into your house is probably a good thing to do. Mm -hmm. The Vikings also had a emphasis on um, they were fatalistic so they believed that you, you can't escape your own fate which is something I think is portrayed really nice in the Viking series where they, they, they don't they try to um, fight with fate but in the end they, they accept it as this is what ought to happen they do a really good job at um, showing that through the course of the series. And believing in this kind of fate means that you, you ought not to judge people for the fate that they're in. So if someone is crippled or is more of the dumb warrior type as uh, Thor was, you, you ought not to judge them for it, but you, you, you see them as this being their fate and you still ought to treat them nicely. So there's a, a at least within your um, in-group, within your social group, you have to be nice towards everyone. You have to, to take care of everyone and, and everyone has their specific value. 
And this is something I see is very much reflected in Nordic European countries still nowadays. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's also the distinction between someone's demeanor that they were born with versus their decisions and their agency. Because I would guess that they still, in Viking philosophy and culture, they would still put a lot of stock in the decisions that someone made and they would still be held responsible for their decisions. But they would say that the outcomes of what's happening in their life are largely guided by the fates or the gods. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that's the emphasis on wisdom. You can only um, be a good person if what you do is based on your knowledge of what is the right thing to do. So if you lack the wisdom to know what's right, it's difficult to do the right thing or you just happen to stumble upon it. So you, you do the right thing by accident, which is questionable whether or not this would be moral behavior or just pure luck. And as you said, agency is important. So you make the decisions and you ought to be defined by the decisions you make. So there's a, an aspect of fatalism that is within your own hands. And this is also something we see through most other religions and ideologies that it really matters on what you decide to do, not just on what fate puts upon you. And this still translates into our lives today, where we we can decide to do the right thing. We can also decide to do the wrong thing. But for the most part, one ought to at least educate themselves a bit about what could be right or wrong. And then decide all these notions are just made up. Knowing how to decide what the wrong, uh, right or wrong thing is is pretty tough sometimes. There are a lot of obvious ones where there's one extremely foul thing you could do and one very righteous thing you could do but the things that are near the middle i think can be pretty tough calls i've noticed something too uh, regarding leadership that i didn't have very much experience for so with the guild that we have on white main we have 46 people on the core raid roster so those are people who will show up on saturday and dedicate anywhere between three to the greatest duration was nine hours of our time. So these people are really heavily invested in the team and what's going on. And I'm the team leader. And that means that sometimes if someone has to get some bad news, say, for example, you're not going to be on the 40 person team on Saturday, that's something that I have to do. It's something that someone has to do. So you wouldn't say that it's a evil thing to do or that I am at fault for doing that but it makes you feel bad being the person to deliver bad news and leadership I think is way less glamorous than it looks in superhero movies and stuff where the superhero is the leader they've got awesome powers there's a villain but they rise to the occasion and take them out and they look like a rock star in the process but a lot of leading involves going into situations that are uncomfortable, awkward, stressful, and doing some of the work that other people don't want to.
there's a quote from the Viking show, since we've referenced it a few times, and this is Viking philosophy. Ragnar says, power goes to those who are willing to lower themselves to pick it up, which I think is very true, especially as power increases in a ruling capacity. If someone is the president of the United States, for example, they may be a very good president for some four to eight year period, but if the country is involved in a lot of military activities around the world, there are going to be some stuff that we're up to that's no good. But you can't micromanage everything that happens in the country for your time that you're ruling. So you do get kind of dirty by that process, even if you're trying your best. The system is too large for you to change it, but you're in a position of great responsibility, which is also fault if things are going wrong. Yeah, I think uh, leadership is always shown as this glamorous thing you want to aspire to, being the leader and being able to to tell everyone what they should do is something that's emphasized in media. The process behind it, where you ought to decide first what you want to tell people and the the struggles you have getting to the right decision um, is not something that is often um, portrayed in media. There's somewhat like the decision between Ragnar and the King of England at the time is kind of this discussion on figuring out what, what the right thing to do is and why you would pick one side over the other if there's two less than optimal uh, less than optimal sites as what for me made the series really interesting and, and what leadership is a lot about in terms of the micromanaging beforehand and you talked about rating and i think there's a, a interesting comparison to be made here to rating during viking times so if you were coordinating a bigger raid you had people from a bit more inland coming to your coastal village and you were not as restricted by the numbers of raiders as you are in world of warcraft but at some point the boat was just full and a raid um took up to a raid took multiple dalmatians Exactly. Um, wife just came home, so that's a bit of. Can we get some dog emotes in the chat? The raiders are here. What? They're raiders? No, they're dogs. No, the dogs are raiding the stream. <laughs> yeah, so uh, a raid back then took a couple of weeks at least, if not half a year. Um, to go someplace, pick up a bunch of stuff from where it's easy or cheap to get and then bring it back home. So the commitment to raiding was quite a bit bigger than it is in a World of Warcraft raid. But also you had, if, if the boat was full, you also had people to tell them, well, we're sorry about that. There's no more boat, no more space on the boat. You have to get home to your village. So it might have taken them a week just to get to the coastal town and then just to get sent back. That's pretty disappointing, especially if you're the type that really likes going out for raids. Mm -hmm. There's a interesting aspect of leadership too, that fits with um, 
the Vikings show and also running the guild in that sometimes a leader is an optimist who tells people that we can do the thing, even if there isn't really a great set of evidence that demonstrates that fact. So an example would be uh, Ragnar in the start of the Vikings show didn't really have firsthand testimony. He didn't have great evidence. There was no map that there were lands to the West that he could raid. He was basing it off of rumors. And those rumors and his charisma rallied people around him that allowed them to take the risk but it did involve some optimism beyond uh, great compelling evidence. It was based on some belief that he had and then his ability to inspire other people to follow him. Uh, similarly, we had a couple of the weeks for our WoW rating weekends that honestly were shit. We had a day where we only filled out 32 out of the 40 spots so, which is not anywhere close to what we would need to down the content because we didn't have great gear for that level. So we got up to the first boss, and there are eight bosses, and we got our ass kicked for three hours to the same boss. It was really tough, and the people on the team were used to clearing out the previous raid and knocking out every boss, and here we're failing over and over again, and we didn't have a full team, which is pretty demoralizing for people. So being the leader sometimes means being that steadfast, uh, positive attitude, even when shit is hitting the fan and it's raining on you and it's cold and it's nasty, but saying, we're fighting through this, I believe in you, and it's going to get better. Even if I didn't have a, a forecast of how the guild was going to grow and what we were going to do moving forward, you still have that like forward-leaning, chest-out, standing tall chin up kind of attitude and now we're doing great we have like 46 people trying to get in so we have the opposite problem of now we have to bench people instead of having too few people but it still involved those periods where stuff was uncomfortable and not as fun and more bleak but with leading from the front you're bearing the brunt of a lot of that shit you're trying to talk to people and find out how to improve the situation and create the best experience you can for everyone on the team. Because if you don't, then they'll leave and you won't have a team to lead. So you do have to be serving the team with your leadership, not being served by the leadership. Yeah, that makes sense. I think that's one of the difficult things as a leader to kind of balance between when to be overly optimistic and when to be pessimistic or realistic for that matter and when, when try to to rally people even though you don't have good evidence and when to to get them back on a solid ground and, and tell them all right well maybe we're, we're not going to make the rate this week but we'll be We'll hopefully have enough people next week and then we can tackle it but this is not going to work and to to make that call and disappoint people is something that's difficult as a leader i think disappointing people is always difficult whether or not you're a leader or just talking to your wife for example um it's not something we like to do and 
but by trying to avoid it, we make things worse for the most part, or we waste everyone's time in terms of uh, leading a raid. Mm -hmm. Yep, people's time is really valuable. I think you have to respect that if you want to respect them as people. Because we are moving creatures. If you take us at one frame, it's just a picture. It's not the living, breathing person. So the value of our time is very much tied to personal worth. All right. So kind of to go back on Vikings a bit. Anything you'd like to know in terms of the gods or in terms of... Like for me, it, it's really difficult to talk about um, Viking philosophy beyond the, the things I already talked about, which is that their, their main values and, and what they kind of... How their life was structured and how that informed them about how to go out into, into the world and interact with it. If there's specific questions that would make it a lot easier for me. So one thing that might be interesting as a, a way of looking at it would be the way that, I guess, the intellectual activities might have occurred. So with the medieval philosophy, the church controlled a lot of the flow of information and knowledge. That's where they taught the priests and things how to read and write. And uh, in Viking culture, they weren't quite as good at reading and writing. So do you know anything about the uh, practices of thought, exchange of ideas, when that would happen? Um, I think there's also something that is not necessarily accurately, but the idea behind it is nicely portrayed in the Viking series where you had um, the Vikings at the time were interacting with other folks that were arguably more literate than they are. And you always had individuals that were more interested in um, writing stuff down instead of punching people for some reason or another. So you, you really had people that were interested in writing down these stories, the, the prose edda that was a collection of different people that decided this is an awesome story, I want to write it down. But the rate of literacy in Viking culture was really low. So you only had a few individuals and we don't even know their names anymore because they kind of got lost either in translation or they didn't sign their works properly. Also, I guess they didn't um, collect royalties for them. Not sure if that was a thing back then. Yeah, so the, the rate of literacy was really low, even compared to medieval uh, Europe, where the rate of literacy was really low as well. But at least you had this focused places that were literate and they were able to collect knowledge and twist it in making it confi with what they believed in the first place, as we talked about last time. Mm. And the prose edda, which is the, the collected work that originated out of 
the poetic Edda, which is the, the poetic versions of, of these stories of the old gods, is what we're looking most towards in terms of learning what the Vikings were about, how they lived their lives, and how they saw their gods. But as I said before, this was already um, in a Christianized uh, Iceland, so they had this kind of bias when looking at these things and when translating them. And yeah, this this makes it really difficult to be able to talk about um, Viking philosophy in a sense that we, we don't have the same we don't have someone like Confucius or like Plato to look towards and be like, all right, this is me. I wrote down all of this. This is what I believe. This is what my life was like. And therefore, this is how I viewed the world. If you don't have these kind of stories, it's really difficult to fathom on what the culture and what day-to-day life was like for a scholarly person, at least. The Viking scholar writes only in blood. Yeah, that'd be another good question. How, um, like, writing was difficult if you had to write into stone tablets. Um, paper was invented pretty early on by the Chinese. By pretty early on, I mean two thousand five hundred years ago. Like where they really started using it a lot and stopped from going to writing on bamboo scripts to writing on what we would now call paper. And this made life a lot easier because if you had a typo in a stone tablet that kind of messed up your day, it kind of messed up your month, I guess. Not sure how long it takes to write a stone tablet. So having resources available to you to be able to make writing easier makes writing also more appealing and i'm not sure how how abandoned paper was during viking times uh, so the question in chat were uh, is it true that they weren't as warmongering as they were rumored out to be um they were really good warriors for their time they were a culture where every free man was supposed to have weapons on them at all time do to protect themselves, protect themselves from wildlife as well. And this was counter to um, most of the Christian culture that was the rest of Europe, where people were not supposed to have weapons because it's more difficult to stand up against the church if you don't have weapons. I think that was their thinking behind that. So they were effective as raiders because they didn't have as much um, holding them back in terms of of well-trained enemies. But if if it came to the problem where they had well-trained enemies, they were most likely to engage in trade with them or work for them. So they were smart in that sense and not as warmongering. They took what was easy to get and if there was nothing easy to get, they did other things. I think a decent way of describing that, um, or at least comparing it, would be just looking at the ways that different kinds of animals interact in the wild. Like, just because you can fight something and you might win, 
doesn't mean that you should if it's going to be of great enough injury to yourself. So you said well-trained enemies. It doesn't necessarily mean enemies they think they'll lose to, but if you have a raid of 40 people using the wow amount and you raid a village with well-trained soldiers who maybe have some pretty good gear and you lose 10 of your 40 people who are your friends who you've known and worked with and raided with over years or sometimes decades, that would be a huge loss. So that's a really important part of deciding how you're going to conduct yourself when you go to a territory is not just can we win and get to the victory screen, but can we come out of this well with good loot, good relationships, and good survivability? Yeah, You're not going to be a very successful leader if you roll in with 40 and you lose 10 people every time. There's also, after three times, if my math is correct, there's no more people to Yeah. And that's assuming you're the last one to die, which probably would not be the case if you're in the front with the rest of them. Yeah. And so there's always the, this cost-benefit analysis that they were doing back then. And they put a big emphasis on being smart, being wise in your decision-making. So um, trying to loot the place where you lose... I'm not sure what the numbers would be, but I guess more than 10% of loss of your troops would be unacceptable. Mm-hmm. I think that, that that'd be the, the number I'd be sticking to. <laughs> Even five. Like, it, it depends on, on the the group size and what what the potential loot is. So you, ha- you had to make this kind of comparison of what is there possible to get and how much are we allowed to lose for it. And they were smart in that sense. Otherwise, they wouldn't have made it as far. Yeah. There would have to be really strong bonds of fellowship between raiders as well. I mean, that's a big part of military morale is your team cohesion and dynamic. Like how closely knit you are, how well you balance out other people's strengths and weaknesses within the group. So you can get stuff done and allow people to thrive. And also building those elements of trust, like we said, combat situations are some of the very highest stress ones that a person could experience, so that uh, trust is really tested. And many times when we're talking about history and this capacity, the people that we're talking about, sometimes we think about them as characters and not as living, breathing human people. So... An example that's captured pretty well when you see TV shows with human actors is it gives those elements of facial expression. You can see their pain and their suffering and their doubt and stuff like that. And you feel for them a lot more than in this case of you think of a Viking raider and you think of the cartoony Viking character who's screaming and beating their chest, but like they would get scared. They probably got lost. And sometimes you lose your brother and something really terrible happens. Like that's all a part of their decision making as well. It's not just the rolling in with your boat, get your booty and get out. <laughs> I think that's another aspect that, that's portrayed rather nicely in the series, the, the um, camaraderie among the raiders and how you wanted your brother and your friends to be safe during the raid. That the 
the social aspect of being a raid group and how that sticks you together. Oh yeah, and there's also permadeath, which is a a useful reminder here. You don't get to just re-roll a character. Well, actually, I've not died, so I don't have firm evidence of this, but if the biology textbooks are correct, you die and you don't get to respawn. I think it's fair to assume that we don't remember our uh, previous playthroughs if we get to respawn. And in that sense, uh, it, it's... Some people claim that they do. Yeah, some people claim a lot of things. So um, I'm not sure. There's um, been this study made about people claiming to know of their um, prior lives. And it seems that people remember being someone important a lot more than they um, remember being a peasant. And yeah, bunch of I've met more Cleopatras than peasants now that I think of it. <laughs> and yes, yeah, some of the characters that were more beloved, um, like if there's a king of England that was more beloved than others, there's a lot of people remembering being him. And if there's some king that wasn't as beloved, almost no one remembered to be them. So there's somewhat of a bias in remembering who you were. Yeah, you don't normally hear of someone who is extremely unlucky or really clumsy. I was a bumbling incompetent in my past life. It's a pretty equal chance to being a, a great hero or king. It's probably a greater chance. Statistically speaking, we were all peasants. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so uh, on the off chance that you do remember your past life and people that claim that to be true, um, you were a king before and now you're a peasant again. Um, going on TV to talk about how great your formal life was, you should have learned a bit more out of that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so if, if you can't remember what your formal life was like, it's basically as starting a new game and never having played before. And there's this concept of adamnesia, which we talked about when we talked about the Greek, which is unforgetting things. And it's a really neat concept, and it's how they relate to the uh, eternal soul that lives within us. Um, soul in a somewhat different sense than the Christians had. Um, so they believed in our souls being eternal and going through different stages of life. But we, we don't keep all the memory. But if there's something that we've learned before and it comes up in our current lifetime, we're unforgetting it. So it it, it comes back to us kind of, and we, we, we know it again since we knew it before, which is a really nice um, feeling you can get from, oh, this makes sense. Yeah, I kind of I kind of knew that. I kind of, yeah, yeah. I, <laughs> a, f a former self knew that. Which could also be some uh, what of a um, 
personal bias because we we tend to think of ourselves as already knowing everything and just knowing something but haven't thought of it yet is a lot nicer than just having been stupid before and now knowing something. Yeah, there's hmm, oftentimes a less glamorous part of discovering how reality really works. There could be a sexy explanation for something and kind of a dull, boring one. Yeah. One of my main examples was switching from the creationist worldview, which is that God made the earth in seven days and day one, bada bing, bada boom, day seven, take a nap. And that's, that's pretty cool. Pretty snazzy, pretty jazzy. He got it done pretty fast. And then you have evolution by natural selection, which doesn't really offer anything that is exciting or that I can work from or utilize in my own life. It doesn't really give me courage in a moment of crisis. I don't think about how, well, I used to be a fish or my ancestors <laughs> looked pretty similar to fish versus the God of the entire universe is watching over me and protecting me and increasing my chances right now. That's way, way more useful <laughs> from a like psychological utility perspective. Yeah, so I, I think, think that's a, a useful thinking tool for you when you have two explanations and you have one of them that is really jazzy, snazzy, and sexy. There's cause for a little skepticism. Yeah, I think that what would a fish do just doesn't have the same ring to it. He probably would go blah, 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 and swim away, which <laughs> arguably is a good solution for most problems you could have. But it's, it's not something we do in real life for the most part. Our church has the best espresso machine in the entire city. And we have the best band for our worship songs. We have the top guitarist, actually, in the entire religion. <laughs> so if you like to praise God and jam out, it's the best church, hands down. Also, we're taking offerings. <laughs> if you want to dedicate some money to church and God, then uh, good things will probably happen to you. Yeah, I think if you're looking at a church or religion from this utility aspect where, where you can get the um, the best coffee, I think there's a good reason to do that. And I'd go to a church that has a nicer coffee over some church that doesn't have any coffee. I think I get that decision. On the other hand, it's kind of um, weird in terms of the religious dogma going into it where it's not necessarily supposed to be about the material things but that might just be taking scripture too serious worship the coffee god fuzzy cord is comforted by the belief that humans once rode dinosaurs into battle that gives me strength as well there's actually a show called i think it's primal it's by tartakovsky the guy who did um dexter's lab and samurai jack um, correct me if the title of that is wrong, but it is kind of set in that time period where humans and dinosaurs, they didn't exist at the same time, but what if they did and you made a show about it? That's what the show is. All right. It's probably Never what the Lord thinks about when he prays. It's pretty new. I think it came out uh, last year, end of last year. So I want to talk a bit about the world's end because that's a thing that is referenced a lot as well 
I think there's roughly 10 different um, metal bands that somewhere have Ragnarok in their name. There's also Ragnaroket that is in chat every so often and streams as well. Yeah, Ragnarok, Ragnarok is a GSO Codes Zerg. That as well, yeah. Ragnarok as a concept, there's also the it's the newest four movie that is about Ragnarok. Is that correct? Sorry, it's what is Ragnarok? The newest movie. The newest four yes. movie. Yeah. Yes, it is. Yeah, so Ragnarok, the, the world's end is bound to happen at some time. Uh, it was claimed to be in 2014 for some reason or another. It was kind of... We were scared about um, the year 2K. Then we were scared about the mind calendar in uh, 2012. Then we were scared about Ragnarok occurring. Yeah, people just like um, the scenario of the world ending for one reason or another. But in, in terms of a world ending, Ragnarok is, is pretty interesting and it has a, quite a few similarities to to other cultures and how we see the world ending, but not in a terminal sense. So Ragnarok is somewhat similar to a cleansing in the world as we see when God flooded the world and just had Noah survive. And Ragnarok is a similar kind of event where just everyone has to die. Couple of people remain. Um, couple of people get reborn, for that matter. Uh, especially in terms of the god, I don't know how that relates to people. And we kind of wash away the sins of the past and and look again towards making a better future, which is a, an interesting concept. So, in terms of how it will happen. So first, and this is how we started the stream, it's the Valkyries coming down from Valhalla. The Valkyries being um, these kind of warrior, um, winged, not angel-like beings, more like... Um... Babes? They're usually portrayed as quite beautiful as well, I think. Like, Yeah, that, that might just be our bias towards preferring to have nice looking Valkyries than not. I don't know how um, accurate that is in a historical sense. But I think it would look like a nicer world's end if there's babes coming down with wings. Hell yeah. So first you have the, the Valkyries that is similar to the, the horns of the angels that would uh, pronounce the, the judgment day in Christian um mythology i guess you could call it the world serpent starts to wrap itself around the globe tighter and tighter causing earthquakes fenrir the giant wolf um will be let loose from its uh he's being tied down he was tied down by four i guess so he loses his shackles and just will, will run wild and stab and chew people. And there will be a 
bunch of different battles between different gods and giants and gods and um, four battles um, Fenrir again for example and for the most part all of these battles will end with all of them dying and uh, just just everyone dying a, a, as a big hole and then the whole world being consumed by flame but as I said, it's this kind of rebirth theory. So everything is consumed by flame and out of the ashes of that flame will rise another greener planet. Which is kind of a beautiful theory. Also kind of terrifying. Oh yeah. If you see beautiful babes coming down with wings from the heaven, you can assume the world will end rather soonish. Unless that happens, I wouldn't believe anyone calling for the world's end. Uh, maybe seeing the um, the four riders of the apocalypse could be another good sign for for the world ending. All right, th these are the actual signs, not just someone telling you that it will all be over soon. I think there is a shared. I guess, collective human desire to see the end of all things. That's kind of a distinction and also satisfaction in knowing the ending of the story. Because if you have your tenure, maybe you live a long time and you live a century, you're not seeing the end of humanity's story. So you don't quite know where we're headed. But if you have a mythology or narrative that tells you the story, that's pretty cool. And I think people will look for the signs if there are written signs. Yeah, it, it's nice to know how things will end, not just for yourself, but for the rest of humanity. And chances are we're not going to um, see that during our lifetime. So we have to, to look towards other sources on how that might go down. The other way would be actively working towards ending the world during your lifetime and be successful with it hopefully not and then you could actually see the end of humanity but i think that's not something that a lot of people follow luckily i have family members who do they um, quite a few people in my family talk about specific things that have happened in government or over the course of the past few decades that are clear signs of the apocalypse and they're estimating that we're like seven years off or something people do make those kinds of predictions and look for signs it's pretty entertaining to hear about that some people are very convinced yeah i think this also has a bias um a built-in bias that we want to see something big happening during our own lifetime so mm -hmm. for example the the second coming of christ it's been overdue about two thousand years roughly but almost everyone that is of the rebirth um, belief within christianity is quite certain that the the rebirth of Christ will happen during their lifetime, which seems statistically unlikely 
for the first part. And on the other hand, I think Jesus would have a really tough time nowadays convincing people that he is the true son of the God. I think there's some people that claim that and they were not as successful as the, as you would make them out to be. Well, there's a lot to live up to. They gave Christ some pretty strong abilities. You need to walk on water, turn water into wine at a bare minimum. And you would need to do this on TV, which no one has been able to achieve. <laughs> do, do you do this at the same time and then be able to walk on wine too? That would be pretty badass. What would be even better is if it was actually pretty good wine. And not just like cheap boxed wine. Gourmet stuff that would make wine tasters impressed. I think it would devalue most of the wine prices if, if you made some gourmet wine just out of water. So a, a lot of people would take issue with that. There, um, You know that we can produce diamonds artificially. Yes. And the diamond, whatever you want to call it, people that um, get the diamonds out of mine, so naturally grown diamonds, they figured out a way of um knowing what is a quote-unquote real diamond and what is an artificial diamond because if there's too many artificial diamonds it would devalue the it would devalue real diamonds so you have to have a way to distinguish them and the question if we have another jesus and he makes um some awesome bordeaux when he walks on water would be what would be the way to distinguish that wine from quote-unquote real wine and which of the two would have the bigger value? Mm -hmm. There's almost always a, a, an economic um, side of things. and Looking at it through that lens makes things a bit weirder than normal, but also a bit more interesting. You can also place a premium on truth as well. Just the notion of it being the actual reality that you're talking about and observing and making predictions on rather than the one that makes you feel good. Yeah, that's a bit problematic because I think actual reality is very subjective. I think people believe different things about what actual reality is and we, we lack the grasp of being able to describe actual reality in terms that everyone could agree on. Well, reality didn't adapt itself so that we could describe it. Why not? We're trying to... Because it doesn't give a shit. If you're taking the naturalistic perspective that there was a big bang that happened based on laws of physics and hot condensed energy that hit a critical mass. Like how does that relate to if I should ask for dating advice right now, what are my chances of getting lucky? That's what astrology does. It, it ties the cosmos directly to your calendar of things that affect you as an agent in the world versus that you are a creature that has filled an energy niche that other creatures did not capitalize on as much. And yeah. we had a major breakthrough in our success with the innovation of language passing down knowledge from generation to generation 
and that makes us really OP over time. Tying this back to what you talked about in terms of uh, leadership and how you need to have a optimistic or pessimistic approach at times, I think there's a lot of value into in terms of dating or whatever you're trying to achieve to have that optimistic outlook and be like, all right, today's the day where I where I'm gonna get lucky. Uh, it makes you go out there in the first place, and if you wouldn't have these kind of psychological incentives uh, there'd be a lot less humans i guess because they they would lack the um the courage to go out yeah that raises a general question about the value of positive delusions kind of the optimism thing of if you think that it's gonna go well then you're more likely to put yourself at risk because you think it's a good bet. Most of the time, I would guess people don't quantify the bets they make. In their estimates, they wouldn't be like, I think it's 65% chance that today's date goes well. We're basing a lot of our perspective on feelings, which have more of an emotional vibrance to them than a verbal or cognitive one. We're not thinking about our nerves and anxiety oftentimes in a like verbal way, you're just more stressed and aware of stuff and concerned. And sometimes you reach for things to try to describe, but if you're really stressed, it's more from a point of a feeling rather than a scripted thought. We are feeling creatures too. I think it's tough to describe the feelings as well because we're using words to describe the feelings. But most people wouldn't know what we're talking about. Nightbot, maybe not as much. <laughs> so Ragnarok happens. The hot Valkyries show up. The wolf is unleashed. The dogs are let out. Thor fights against... Fenrir. Uh, no, the, 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 the serpent wraps itself around the globe and just squeezing it in order to cause the earthquakes. Nice. And since it's starting out having its tail in its mouth, it probably just is continue to consume itself. Mm-hmm. That might just be my interpretation of it. But if you're squeezing tighter, like as a serpent, yeah. Not sure about that. Ragnarok is a pretty metal kind of apocalypse. I can see why they would have a lot of metal bands up there. (laughs) Loki falls. Heimdall versus Loki. Who is Heimdall again? Oh, I still have the list open. I want to say a giant, but I'm not sure. Heimdall. No, he's one of the gods. He's the um, the wisest oh, of the gods. Elba. Yeah, he's the guardian of the Bifrost. He decides who goes on the rainbow bridge and teleports around. And can also see through that as well. So he can see super far. 
I'm just basing this off of the movie. I don't actually know the Norse mythology. Yeah, yeah I, I think that, that that is is about to be correct. That he, he was the one that saw Ragnarok coming first. So he was the one that kind of alerted everyone else because he was the one that sees the furthest and saw that Ragnarok is coming. He hears the grass growing and the wool growing on sheep backs. Damn. I think that element is described as an aspect of the Christian God, but I don't know of very many other gods who have that as an aspect in uh, polytheism. That's cool. Heimdall seems awesome. Is he benevolent? Yes. Like in the Marvel stuff? He's not benevolent, he's wise. So he's... I think benevolence can turn towards being overly accommodating in a sense so you're just trying to be good for the sake of being good so Heimdall was being wise and being fair so if you did um, if you lived the wrong life you are not uh, you shouldn't expect him to not judge you based on that he just did his job in the best way he he knew how to do it mm-hmm so I, I wouldn't call him benevolent. He was um, fair, I guess, would be the, the best word to describe him. I think benevolence ends up, or wisdom being tied to the long-term success of the group, which there's tons of overlap there. It is wise to sacrifice some of yourself for the benefit of the group over the long-term, which is a very benevolent stance. Yeah, I think these concepts kind of go together, and it's there's a big overlap. It's kind of depends on how you how you look at the term benevolence in the end. Disregard on seeing how if he is like he he's he's not a bad dude. That's what I'm trying to say. But benevolent wouldn't be the first word that comes to mind. But that might be a translation error on my side. Oh, I was more stating an opinion. I think. That I think it is wise to be good. If most cultures are to be believed, wisdom and goodness have a strong correlation. Otherwise, you're just being good out of sheer luck. And then it's a question whether or not you're just being good or just being lucky. Moral luck is an interesting concept we should talk about someday. It's it's a bit much to be going into right now. There's like different theories on on how we like how our action um, will develop in a ethical sense. Like I want to do X, and there's different ways to approach it. And based on how I approach um, this scenario, I either be moral or immoral in my action, but it doesn't only depend on what I choose to do. It also depends on the prior knowledge that I have. And it depends on a lot of outside stuff, like will something that has a certain amount of chance, will it occur or will it not occur? So the, the result of an action and the intent of an action are two quite different things and they will yield different results in a ethical sense. 
uh, and to distinguish between intent and result in this sense is a interesting um, an, in an interesting field of ethics itself where you can have the best intentions if you use them for um, stupid measures that will res result in stupid things the intentions don't matter but you could also have um, good intentions um, use them to do the right things and everything goes well until something unexpected happens in this term you just got unlucky so there's there's a bunch of different scenarios we can look at at some other point it's interesting things interesting stuff in my opinion cool we've covered a good bit of ground i just reached a stopping point in the dungeons we're doing did you want to watch any of the videos um i think it'd be if people in chat are interested in learning a bit more of the story aspects of things of how um vikings lived their lives and how they saw their gods i think it'd be interesting stuff to watch i'll be sure to join um it is 4 22 a.m where i am so if you said you had 30 minutes of video, what about 10? That was their best video of the set. They all kind of go into each other. I think in terms of pure watchability, I'd go for the second one, which is just explaining the, um, the Norse pantheon and the, the different gods they had and how they did weird stuff and, and what resulted from that. So I think I'd watch that one. The first one is mostly about Viking in a historical cultural sense, which is interesting as well, but it's not as funny in my opinion. And the third one is just purely about Ragnarok and how the world will end at some point. Sweet. Well, this is a really fun discussion. Always fantastic having you on. I think we got to riff more off of this one since the Vikings didn't write down quite as much hard facts and clear documents that had multiple copies. There's some um, translated stuff from the Edda um, that we could look at, but it's just, I find it weird. Like it's not, it's straightforward in what it said, but it's just weird to read, especially out loud. I'll give you an example. Um, happy is he who wins for himself, fair fame and kindly words, but uneasy is that which a man doth own while it lies in another's breast. Hmm. So what it's saying is basically if it's, it's nice to, um, to earn something unless it's someone else's beforehand. So doing something like being productive is good. Taking stuff away from others is not as good. And the, there are a lot of these and they're weird. They're kind of funny. They're kind of, they're definitely interesting, but I don't think they're um, as poetic as say the Tao Te Ching to be read on stream. Oh, sweet.
thank you Vikings for all of your hard work and dedication traveling about and I know the seas are really rough and people were shouting at you in languages you didn't understand <laughs> maybe you took their stuff and then you had stuff to show for it when you got home you did a lot of foul and evil things but we got some pretty sexy tv shows out of it so check out vikings i've watched all of up to season five i think season six is airing now and it's not included with amazon prime so i'm just waiting until it's over and then i'll watch the whole thing I think I stopped after season four. I'm not sure though. Yeah, it was fun having this conversation. Um, next time we'll go into something that has a bit more literally source again. So I'll be able to talk a bit more fluidly more than just picking random facts about Viking that I was able to pick up on the way. I'm not quite sure um, what it will be about, um, but people are free to give suggestions in the philosophy channel on Discord. And this talk not, uh, today was also based on popular demand. People wanted to hear about Vikings because they are so awesome berserkers that just kill everything in their path, which I think we've relevated somewhat now. But there, I, th I think a lot of it has to do with the lack of good sources, where it's a lot easier to romanticize the Vikings than it is to romanticize the old Greeks, because for the most part, we know all the weird stuff they were up to. Yeah, not as much for the imagination if you have a bunch of evidence of what went on. So cool. This will be the conclusion of the Voice of Nero episode. We can link the video that we're about to watch in the description of this, so you can watch it on your own time. Thank you for tuning in, and join us for the next Philosophy Clock with Eche Fatim. GG.